Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Arimus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, January 22nd. On today's show, we'll talk about news that the French government has fined Google around $57 million for violating the new European privacy laws that went into effect last year. This comes as news that the Federal Trade Commission here in the United States is considering levying a record-breaking fine against Facebook for violations to their users' privacy following the Cambridge Analytica mess. And corporate fines may well be a theme this year following the great cleanup after the 2016 election went awry. And then we're going to talk about Juul, not the Alaskan folk singer, but the multi-billion dollar e-cigarette company that's dominating that new industry. It's been quite a year for Juul. Their offices were raided by the FDA. They at least provisionally agreed to stop selling certain fruity flavors of tobacco, clearly popular with kids. They accepted a $13 billion investment from Altria, the parent company of Marlboro. And most recently, this month, they announced a new $10 million national TV marketing campaign to help make sense of the company that controls an estimated 70% of the e-cigarette market and the vaping trend in general, we'll be joined by Natasha Tiku, senior writer for Wired, who's been covering the company. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Will, how's it going? It's all right. Thanks. It's bitterly cold here on the East Coast, and uh, my cat is in the hospital at the moment with some kind of stomach issue. He probably ate some cord or cable that he wasn't supposed to. So hopefully that turns out all right. Other than that, I'm doing well. How oh, about no. you? I'm I, I'm probably doing better than your cat. Um, is a cat hospital the same as the cat doctor? Is that like the same thing? No, the cat hospital is like a, it's, it's a whole nother level. Yeah, it's the animal hospital. Wow, I did not know that. We carted him meowing in there today and hopefully everything comes out all right. He, he was um, in the habit of chewing on my Mac laptop cables for a long time. The power, the power cords. Those things are like eighty bucks each. So I probably spent, I've probably spent five hundred dollars lifetime on Mac power cables. Um, but this time it's come back to haunt him. That's really <laughs> weird that cats chew on those out of all of the hard objects in the world they could chew on. Um, but you know something that I've been <laughs> chewing on to make an awkward transition oh, uh, no. are uh, the fines that um, will ostensibly be levied on companies uh, throughout this year, as we reckon with both the new European set of privacy laws that are very strict and apparently hard to follow, as well as. Uh, the kind of aftermath of the public referendum that that Facebook and Google and Twitter and social media companies have gone through after the 2016 election. I'm still stuck on that segue from, from <laughs> chewing on cables to chewing Sorry, on the fines. I don't know. But no, this is serious. <laughs> this is serious. So, but but tell me, the French government fined Google close to 57 million dollars for violating GDPR. That's that that huge suite of privacy laws that Europe passed. Um, what what exactly did Google do to deserve this? And and $57 million sounds like a lot for almost anybody except Google, but for Google, it's probably a drop in the bucket, right? 
So I basically, from what I can tell, it, the the regulator says that there was a lack of transparency around the way information was shared or the way like users' information is shared. People were not informed about how data was collected, particularly when it comes to personalized advertising. And the second part of your question, which is, you know, is this fine substantive or is this going to really hit their their like pocketbook enough to change their behavior is a really, really good one, right? Because we're talking about companies that make well over $100 million a day, right? I mean, I don't know about Google for sure, but I just wrote a story about Facebook looking at their SEC filings and and they, you know, brought in over $40 billion in revenue in, uh, in 2017. That's over $109 million a day. You know, $57 million is like, you know, a few hours of work, right? <laughs> so, yeah, Google... Google is, is earning, I believe, about $35 billion per quarter. Um, yeah, okay. So, so we're talking about like, uh, you know, a bathroom break or a coffee break or something. Like this is just not something that is really going to make the company flinch in terms of a, a penalty if, if the idea of the penalty is to change behavior, right? If that's the, if that's the purpose. Right. I guess there's the question of, of do the financial penalties continue and escalate if they don't fix things about their products? And, and then how hard are those to fix? I mean, does Google just have to add a couple extra lines of disclosure here and there? Or does this force them to somehow fundamentally change the way they, they collect data on people? Yeah, and I think that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. It's not just whether or not the fines escalate. Um, you know, another piece of news that came out at the end of last week is that the Federal Trade Commission is considering... Uh, you know, what it would find potentially Facebook if Facebook is found to have violated their 2011 consent decree, which required that the company get explicit permission from users uh, before sharing data, which it appears the company might not have done, as we learned with Cambridge Analytica and the way that data was shared, um, you know, and, and that fine could exceed the $22.5 million that that Google was fined last year for, for breaking a, a privacy agreement with the commission. Um, and and, you know, I, I think I, I was talking to uh, to various experts about this at the end of last week, uh, Jennifer Taub from uh, Vermont Law School. And, you know, she had a really interesting take. She was saying that it's not about the size of the fine when we're talking about a company this big. It's about who pays the fine. Right. And so, you know, if this is just going to be absorbed by the company or the shareholders, then those who made the bad decisions to operate the company in a way that was harming users and harming the company won't necessarily be, um, uh, you know, inspired to change their behavior because they're not really being hit by this at all. She says that a better uh, way to go about this, and, and I spoke to other experts, too, who, who echoed this, uh, would be to, to actually find the executives and for uh, for the regulators to to pinpoint, you know, who, where, where the money is coming from, right? Not so that it's not coming from the shareholders, but that, you know, it's coming from from actually the executives who had to make the decision. And this is something that the SEC has done a bit. I don't think the FTC has done it, but it's really important to, to think about the shape of these fines and not just about the amount, right? And kind of like what what kind of fine it is and, and who has to pay it. You know, looking at the SEC filing, just to ramble a bit more of uh, Cheryl, Cheryl Sandberg, for example, of, uh, you know, Facebook's proxy statement from uh, 2017, 
you know, she brought in, I think, over 20, 25 million dollars last, you know, that year. Um, that's a ton of in money. salary, right? In, no, not just in salary and compensation, compensation. and stock, everything. Yeah. But I mean, they, they're making a ton of money and the executives are not going to have to absorb that. And so, you know, perhaps they won't change their behavior. And, you know, there is a world where Facebook might be perfectly happy paying 20 million a year every year. Uh, to continue their poorest privacy practices, which is obviously making the company a ton of money. They continue to, you know, exceed, uh, you know, the their profits every year. That's an interesting point. And it would be uh, entertaining to see the finger pointing that goes on or who gets thrown under the bus at the companies as they try to figure out who's responsible exactly. Um, but Or no, just all the just if the executives have to pay or the board has to pay, which is comprised of Facebook executives, you know, in, in this case. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. The other thing I was thinking is I don't know if this will really make a difference, but just the fact that they are getting fined. I mean, Facebook has been accused of violating that FTC consent decree yeah. over and over and over again. But if they actually get fined, even if it doesn't hurt them financially, they it's now on the record that they violated it, you know, that they they promised the American people they were going to do this and that to protect their privacy. And then they did not do it. And they were sort of found guilty. I mean, it's not a criminal court, obviously, but but in a sense, they were found guilty of wrongdoing. And that should be some kind of disincentive for them to uh, to keep breaking these these rules. I don't know if a bad news cycle is going to dissuade Facebook from doing anything. They seem to weather a lot of bad news cycles and just keep on keeping on. I think that uh, the threat of policy, you know, and, and actual regulation would. And so, you know, maybe having a definitive verdict on this would inspire lawmakers to do something. That's a good point. But I, I'm not sure. Facebook has been really good at apologizing for 14 years now, as, as I know. Tufaki pointed out in her fantastic Wired piece last year. Yeah, that's a good point. And maybe for lawmakers who are on the fence or they 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 sat at these hearings and listened to Mark Zuckerberg talk and confuse the issue and they just came away thinking, well, I don't really know if they did anything wrong or not. Maybe seeing these companies get fined gives them the, the sort of cover or the sort of assurance that, yes, there is something shady going on here. There is something wrong. And then they look at the amount of the fines and think, well, maybe maybe we need policy here and not just not just slaps on the rest. Yeah, last thing I'll say is that like Facebook actually did something really bad here. They had a rule that they were supposed to follow. Like the whole point of creating federal policy is that it's followed, right? When they explicitly don't follow it for years, you know, that's a big deal. And and this is grounds for I think, you know, thinking about, you know, who pays this fine for policy change. This is not like a minor uh, infraction that lasted a short amount of time either. They did this for years. So uh, we'll see how it plays out for sure. And I'm happy to see that you're opening with this conversation, actually. Just one more thing I wanted to put in there is that Facebook's consent decree with the FTC, for people who don't know, this was something they had to agree to as part yeah. of a, a settlement <laughs> back in 2011 for already screwing people. <laughs> like they they were, they were you know, allegedly mis- misleading their users in all sorts of ways about how their information would be used. So then the, the deal was the FTC said, look, all right, you have to promise to uh, – you know, to notify people every time you change how you use their data. You have to promise X, Y, Z. And that's the promises that Facebook went ahead and, and, and broke. We're going to keep following this for sure, but we're actually going to pivot to another Facebook company because this company is so inescapable. And that is WhatsApp made some major changes, I think, uh, yesterday or, or, or earlier this week they, they, they announced that. What, what exactly is happening with WhatsApp, Will? Right. So WhatsApp, the, the messaging app that Facebook acquired several years ago uh, and that has become a dominant messaging app in many parts of the world, although not in the United States, has decided that it will limit the number of people that you can forward a message to 
um, to five people or groups. So you can you can forward something to five individuals or groups, but you can't forward it to more than that. And that might sound like a small thing. It was initially put into practice in India by Facebook last year uh, by WhatsApp. That was WhatsApp's largest market. Now it's going to be rolled out globally. But it's actually something that critics had been calling for. By limiting the way things spread, Facebook is hoping to, you know, stop uh false information from from going super viral and trying to keep this app a really local chat app um, as opposed to this kind of chat app that that just ripples into a global network. Um, Now, you know, limiting things to five people doesn't mean that you know, five people and five people and five people and five people and five people can't quickly cascade to to many more. But uh, but it, it sure does reduce the broadcasting power of those who uh, have, you know, nefarious intent or are trying to stir hatred and puts a lot more work on them to seed those rumors um, and to to push them out. You know, one thing I'm curious about, though, are bot accounts or different ways that uh, that that people who are expert at at planting viral misinformation will find ways to dance around this. Um, I also uh, am curious why why they decided to roll this out kind of worldwide, like what findings they had about, you know, this being a real limiting uh, force for uh, stopping the spread of misinformation or if it's not about misinformation. Why did they say they're doing this because of specifically misinformation, Will? Yes. They said we settled on five as the limit because we believe this is a reasonable number to reach close friends while helping prevent abuse. And in fact, this was called for by by a group of academics last year ahead of the Brazilian mm-hmm. elections. Right, Again, because that. the idea was this is a closed network. This is private communication. But people were able to just instantaneously send, uh, pass on rumors or memes or conspiracy theories or incitements to violence to huge groups of people all at once. And so... Uh, you know, fake news was flourishing perhaps even more on WhatsApp than it did on platforms like Facebook, where at least uh, the outside world can kind of see what's being shared and what's going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how this will play out. This is a proposal that academics who have thought long and hard about this, ha- uh, you know, forwarded last year. And it makes a lot of sense to me. It's limiting the broadcast power of individuals. Uh, and, you know, WhatsApp is a very unique platform. So um, also something that I, I look forward to to watching, particularly uh, when big news moments swell or, you know, if we see another instance of like a dictatorial government trying to use the platform to, to forward hate or just hate groups using the platform around the world. Um, so, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a, an interesting development and uh, perhaps overdue, but but welcome. All right, with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our interview with Wired's Natasha Tiku about Juul and the e-cigarette industry. is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Natasha Tiku, senior writer for Wired, covering Silicon Valley, technology, and culture. Natasha, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's start with the basics. And I know this is going to sound extremely obvious to anybody in their 20s or probably their late teens. But for those of us who are old and untrendy and grew up with cigarettes instead of vape pens, can you just tell us what is Juul and why are people jeweling instead of smoking? Sure. So Juul is an e-cigarette and it is wildly popular among kids and also among uh, vapors. It looks like a kind of a a rectangle, a thin rectangle, like an extended USB port. And it comes with different pods in flavors like mango, um, cucumber, mint. And part of the reason that it's so ubiquitous, you know, once I talk to you about it, you'll start seeing that everyone's kind of secretly puffing on a jewel uh, as they walk down the street is because it's really discreet. And that's initially how the company tried to um, market it. Like, here is the apple of e-cigs. You know, it'll give you the same buzz. We promise it has very high nicotine content and, you know, you can do it anywhere. And so it's become really popular with kids. Is it, is it legal to, to buy if you're under 18? Is that why it's surged in popularity with, with teens? It is. So the FDA has begun a crackdown that makes it much harder to obtain. But for a while there, um, you know, you could – it was – fairly easy to buy it online. Um, If you start looking around your friendly neighborhood bodega, you'll see that it was, um, you know, it's it's always stocked on the shelves um, and 7-Elevens and other kinds of retail stores. Actually, Jewel has 70% 70 of the retail market. And considering that the company just launched in 2015, that's incredible growth. Right. And so there's like a fear that this, I mean, it has nicotine in it, that it's getting kids addicted. It is getting kids addicted, is it? Or that this is kind of a gateway to, to smoking cigarettes, right? That's kind of part of the, the, the concern here. Yeah, that's definitely part of the concern. I mean, the FDA, the CDC has talked recently about an epidemic, and they don't use that term lightly, of um, e-cigarette use among youth. Um, you know, they, they feel like it's set back decades of gains made by anti, anti-tobacco public health advocates. Um, part of the reason why it's so popular among kids is because the company's profile grew through social media, through like viral posts on Instagram and YouTube. And uh, part of the reason why Jewel was able to stay under the radar for a bit is that these posts were being done by influencers. Um, You know, so the company wasn't necessarily paying for it. And Adults weren't necessarily seeing, you know, the the videos on YouTube or the um, posts on Instagram. What are the health effects of Juul? I mean, we know it's supposed to be better for you than smoking cigarettes, right? Because it doesn't have the additives that are uh, linked with lung cancer, um, but it's still obviously a nicotine product. Right. Well. The FDA has yet to um, uh, go through its licensing, you know, the equivalent of a licensing product for e-cigarettes. So a lot of it is unknown. Um, You know, Juul's kind of uh, growth at all costs 
strategy towards pushing its product around is based on the idea that, you know, the problem is uh, combustible cigarettes and that its product, which uses nicotine salts, um, you know, it will end up saving people's lives. But we've already seen, based on some early studies, you know, nothing is definitive yet that um, kids are seeming to increase their use exponentially after they start trying it, and also that um, Juul's particular pods are very high in nicotine and, you know, potentially even higher than than uh, than what they say. I mean, just on the way into work this morning, I saw a bus stop in Oakland that said, you know, just so you know, one Juul pod is equivalent to one pack of cigarettes, and I would wager that most of the kids smoking it and even some of the adults or most of the adults don't know that, and that's something that, you know, your question about its Jules' intentions, um, you know, if it was always on the up and up and really health-oriented, I think they would have made that clear. Um, there's been a number of lawsuits for uh, filed by parents who say that Juul addicted their kids to nicotine, and they say that kids didn't even know that it contained nicotine. I mean, when you hit it, it's very mild-seeming. Um, you know, it'll definitely give you a buzz, but I could see how somebody might not even know what was in it. Yeah, I've heard that for a lot of young people these days, like smoking is totally uncool, but juuling or vaping has become really trendy in the way that smoking maybe used to be in an earlier generation. Um, but Juul has been forced by the FDA to change its whole marketing scheme. And so now I went to their website earlier today, and they're marketing themselves exclusively as a as a healthier option for existing smokers, right? They're, they're saying they're targeting the world of a billion adult smokers and trying to get them to switch to something safer. I even heard somebody describe them, or maybe they describe themselves as a health tech company, which seems like a little bit of a stretch. But there is this equation about, like, are they saving more lives of existing smokers because uh, Juul is healthier than than conventional cigarettes, or are they going to end up costing more lives because they get a whole new generation addicted to nicotine uh, just at a time when cigarettes were becoming less and less popular? Right. Well, I think it's important. There's one big caveat on the recent FDA crackdown, which has been very intense. I mean, they raided Juul's office to get documents. They've been putting out a lot of um, proposed regulations, but these are all proposed for now. And the FDA is working with Juul and with other um, tobacco companies on a kind of, you know, what kinds of regulatory changes will um, will suffice. And the closer you look, you know, it comes with a lot of um, asterisks, like they've taken out the um, mango, cucumber, and other flavors that, that estimate about like 55% of its sales. However, they say that if retail stores start complying, they can bring it back. And, you know, even the even though they took out mango, they're keeping mint pods in the store. And um, the public health advocates I've talked to say, you know, there are no mint cigarettes. Why would you need this if it's for smoking cessation or, or uh, switching? Yeah, one thing that just feels so disingenuous to me, I mean, just, you know, remembering being a kid and, and smoking a lot of marijuana and then after that moving to smoke cigarettes. And it's not like marijuana you know, has something in it that, like, makes you want to smoke cigarettes. It's just you get used to smoking. It's culture. You know what I mean? It's like it's something that you kind of get used to doing with your hands. You know, maybe smartphones have replaced cigarettes for some people in many ways. But uh, it seems like with so much of the social media campaigns that they had and then and now, you know, these television commercials and stuff that they really are trying to create kind of a culture of coolness around this. And 
it seems like the culture is what kind of drives kids to smoke more. And so I don't know, it just seems like the whole product is is based on, you know, smoking in some form or another being cool. And that's always going to lead to health risks. So I don't know, it just it just always kind of rubbed me the wrong way, the whole like jewel premise. Right. Well, I think there are serious questions about what Juul's initial intentions are. I mean, sure. the aura of cool around Juul, it, there is a strong argument to be made that it, it, it was unintentional. You know, a lot of the, uh, even, even um, academics who studied the viral growth on social media, they say a lot of those posts are not paid for. And the recent TV commercial that you mentioned, you know, that all shows uh, adult smokers who switched, who are over- 35 or something, and, you know, it's in really drab browns and, um, you know, it looks like an anti-tobacco ad. However, you know, this is happening in in 2019 after Juul has already benefited from the viral growth of its social media campaign. So, you know, if you were, say it was completely unintentional and you were a company that was doing this, how would you behave? Um, I think based on its response it doesn't seem like Juul has changed its mind about, you know, its its uh, growth at all cost strategy. For example, um, the company took a $12.8 billion investment from Altria, right. the maker of Marlboro, for 35% stake in the company that values it at $38 billion. Now, <laughs> you know... That's a lot of money. <laughs> now they're sharing interest with Marlboro. <laughs> Yeah, not only that, I mean, you're going to have to sell a lot more e-cigs in order to, um, you know, make good on that $38 billion valuation. And part of what they said is that they're going to benefit from Marlboro's, um, you know, obviously their lobbying, but also their distribution and logistics. Um, Marlboro said they might, you know, start putting jewel ads in its uh, cigarette packs, you know, and they have dominant uh, shelf space behind the counter. And... Public health advocates are worried that rather than, you know, so do you trust Altria to be committed to wanting to make its products obsolete? Otherwise, what you're doing is setting it up for um, people to be using both and for smoking cessation to get even harder because you can kind of use jewels surreptitiously, uh, you know, while you're at work or, you know, in areas where you can't smoke. So in some ways, this is such a Silicon Valley company. I mean, it came from Stanford design students, I think. It's based in San Francisco. Um, If you look at their marketing, it's like it's all tech company marketing. It's like we're on a mission to improve the lives of a billion adult smokers. And our products have a unique satisfaction profile and a simple interface. But on the other hand, this is sort of like, uh, to me, I wonder if we're in a new era of Silicon Valley uh, in terms of where startups are going. I mean, we had the big social media booms and the internet companies, and then we had Uber and Netflix, and then the, the Uber of everything, right? Like you take every kind of service and you make you make it uh, accessible via an app on demand. But now you've got companies like Juul and then the scooter companies. I don't know, maybe this is a stretch, but you're somebody who's covered Silicon Valley and the startup scene for a long time. What, have you, what do you make of some of the, the hottest startups now being about sort of real world physical products that don't really have anything to do with the internet? I mean, I I find it quite terrifying because our ability to oversee and regulate these things is, um, you know, can't keep up with the growth rate of a really well-funded startup, you know, and and, uh, these companies, you know, you could liken it also to WeWork. These companies are getting valuations based on tech companies, which grow by just multiplying their, you know, use of software. When you're talking about 
human beings who are going to start smoking Juul, you know, take everything you've ever heard about Facebook um, in terms of addiction or social media in terms of addiction and, you know, add the highest stakes possible, your life. And I find it really, um, you know, I I talked to the company kind of in the midst of this backlash against them, and they really sound like, you know, they, they sound like any other startup you you, you two have probably interviewed, and they also seem to believe, at least for a while, that the fix came from technology as well. Like one of their proposed solutions for um, for dealing with uh, Juul use in schools was a Bluetooth device that shut the Juuls down, um, you know, while you were on school property. And you know, the I mean, the implication if it worked, the the implications of tracking kids who are using your product. It's it's just it's staggering. So um, I find it alarming on many levels. But at the same time, I will say, I mean, and this is I think what makes it tricky is because the science is unknown. You know, it's really hard to say. It's really hard to just dismiss out of hand their argument that it's better for people. Um, uh, and I think this is where public health advocates have found what seems like a really straightforward story to uh, like get derailed easily by saying like, well, we're we're keeping people from you know a known carcinogen, a known uh, cause of cancer. So uh, you know we're just right now in this in this middle ground, and it's been interesting to see how Silicon Valley has responded to the company. There are definitely some investors who are interested in backing the company, but they have um, uh, vice clauses in their in their uh, with their limited partners that don't allow them to. So I think because of that, it's also created like a um, kind of a convenient line in the sand. Um, you know, it's easy for everyone to to distance themselves from the product, but. I don't know. I think they are really also enamored with how quickly it grew in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, as a consumer product, you can kind of see their the gleam in their eyes when they talk about it. Natasha Tigu, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. One final quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 dollars more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details all right, time for Don't Close My Tabs. Will, let's start with you. What uh, what did you enjoy reading this last week? All right, this is a tab that I literally did have trouble closing, or at least I couldn't stop going back and reading it um, because there were multiple ways to interpret it. But it's a story in Huffington Post um, called Jack Dorsey Has No Clue What He Wants. And this is a Q&A that the CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, he's also the CEO of Square, by the way, but this was more about his work with Twitter. Um, he sat for this with Ashley Feinberg of HuffPost. If, if you know Ashley's work, she's uh, hilarious and, a, and sort of a bomb thrower and enjoys um, kind of trolling um, public figures to provoke them into saying things. 
and then has also perfected the art of taking them down on Twitter, although she did once get taken down by Ted Cruz herself. Um, That's another story. In this case, Dorsey agreed to an interview with her, which is a little surprising. Um, He did it because she had been DMing him on Twitter saying things like, Jack, you could end all of this. Jack, delete the website. Jack, it's time. You need to shut down the website. (laughs) Finally, he was like, Look, what you know? Let's let's sit down and talk about this. And the interview was so fascinating, not because of anything Dorsey said, but because of what he didn't say and what Feinberg, as a reporter, did with that. So, in response to a, a lot of very specific questions um, from Feinberg, Dorsey did something that he's, he's wants to do, which is kind of revert to generalities and, and speak about the hard thought that the company is putting into problems like this, and how you know we still haven't figured it all out, and he that's something we're going to have to really anything. examine. It was amazing. Right. He, he didn't like say. <laughs> I, <laughs> I am I'm so impressed at these executives who they've been trained to say nothing. <laughs> It's incredible. Right. And and this is a very common thing. But what but what made this story interesting is that Feinberg, instead of just running the Q&A and being like, well, I guess I didn't get much out of Jack Dorsey, but here's what he said. She kind of flipped the, the genre on its head and, and started the story by saying, I sat down with Jack Dorsey and he didn't say anything. And he and she made it the, the, the whole piece about his refusal to get into specifics and about his gibberish in her words. And and so uh, the story became the fact that he didn't say anything rather than just being another sort of bland Q&A with a corporate executive. Yeah, I thought that uh, she had a really smart top to the story. Um, and then the uh, the Q&A was just worth reading if you're if you're interested in how people in power uh, learn to kind of I don't know, punt questions and and not really take criticism seriously and kind of envelope everything into this, you know, easy talk. Um, I I thought it was just kind of a fascinating kind of study in rhetoric um, for of power. <laughs> like, I feel like I've I've read this before or seen this before. I'm I'm still trying to think through it, but just just in terms of the the conversation and the nothingness of it and the power that he has to actually do something and yet saying so little was just really demeaning almost and like fascinating. Yeah. And and a lot of people took it that way and they were sort of infuriated by it. Other people saw it as evidence that he's just clueless and doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know. I don't think that's the case, though. I think, I mean, I have a slightly different perspective and and maybe this is too generous, but everything I know about Jack Dorsey is that he's he's a conceptual person. You know, he think he kind of thinks big picture and he thinks in generalities and uh, he's also running two companies at once. So it may just be that he's not that steeped in the specifics of some of the, some of the questions that she was asking about. Um, but it, it certainly, it certainly didn't come out well for him. By the way, I've invited Jack to come on oh, our no show way, at some really? point. So, okay. so we'll see uh, if, I mean, if, I mean, if he's dude, serious yeah. about taking on tough questions, we would love to have him and, and, uh, uh, and and grill him here on if then, but um, but yeah. So that was my tab this week. April, what about yours? Yeah, I um, have a story that I, I read today that was really jarring and um, important. Uh, uh, called "Corporate America Is Getting Ready to Monetize Climate Change." It's in Bloomberg, and it uh, it is about you know this litany of of ma- major companies like Walt Disney World and Coca Cola and Home Depot and Apple and really how they're thinking through how climate change is going to affect their business and their bottom line. And um, it kind of goes through some of the like talking points and thinking 
kind of points that that these companies have um, have discussed and 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 disclosed. And you know, one being uh, Home Depot thinks that uh, a hotter weather due to global warming is probably going to cause an uptick in sales for air conditioners. That seems like a safe bet. Yeah, Apple's looking at like hand crank phone charging, so then people will want to buy more iPhones because of the. Um, because of the uh, the flashlight in it, you know, uh, Coca Cola is worried that they're going to run out of water to make Coke. Um, you know, Visa warns that global warming could increase global pandemics. So, you know, they're um, really thinking these companies are thinking about how they could monetize climate change, how this could be a boom for them in different ways, um, how this will kind of be something they can bank later, and. Um, I just, you know, I think it's just really striking to it's a striking way and and, and useful way to remember that companies don't uh, really have a body a kick or to kick or a soul to damn in many ways. Right. Like they are uh, a group of people who are uh, agree on one thing, and that is that they're trying to make as much money as possible. And they're going to be thinking in those terms and not uh, not in terms of, you know, extinction and the people who will inevitably suffer first from that, they're going to think of how they can monetize that. So uh, super uh, important piece. I, I recommend people read and, and keep in mind as we continue to navigate the effects of climate change. It's something that I feel a lot being here in California as fire season is now a year round event and uh, and just, you know, people being displaced and, and we have a housing crisis here. And, you know, it's something that we're just going to continue to feel and, um, yeah, it's good to know or keep in mind that these companies could make a lot of money from it. So interesting. Yeah, this, this was it is a really interesting piece, and I think it's great reporting. I'll play the the like soulless corporate apologist for a second. I mean, it would be sure. bad to me if these companies weren't thinking about how the world changes under climate change, and and of course you'd expect them to also be thinking about how does it affect the market for their products and and what can they be doing to plan for it. Um, but Certainly, there are also companies who would it would it be bad for companies to instead say, "Hey, we're all humans and we care about other humans, and you know, let's think about how much money we have that we make and what we can do to, um, you know, help people who are going to be affected by these disasters." <laughs> Not, I don't know. I mean, of course, they're going to be thinking about how they can make money. I guess, but I, I, I don't know if uh, it's something that I would say. It's, you know, that I would, like, just say, well, it's pretty good that they're doing this, actually. You know, I, I just don't think. No, I'm not, I'm not saying it's good necessarily. I'm just saying the fact that they are that they're planning their businesses around a world in which climate change is happening is not surprising to me. Yes, um, and, and of course, some of them are some of them are trying to fight climate change in various ways and others are not. Others are obviously fighting to avoid any kind of uh, regulation that could help us mitigate climate change. And, and that should certainly be condemned. Um, but uh, there are also companies that are, whose entire businesses are built on the premise of climate change. Um, uh, you know, water desalination companies, um, uh, especially ones who are selling snow to ski resorts. <laughs> I mean, that's like, yeah. pretty, to me, a pretty clear case of, of climate profiteering. Um, other cases like Coke worrying about running out of water. I mean, that just seems like common sense. Like, yeah, Coke should be worried about running out of water because if, if something has to go, you'd like to think that the Coke would go first before the drinking water. But then again, the way our, our society works, that <laughs> maybe that's not what would happen. Maybe the, maybe people would die of thirst first before Coke ran out of water. 
I'm glad that Bloomberg did this piece to kind of remind us uh, that these conversations are happening at a very high level with very different interests involved. So, you know, good journalism and, you know, predictable conversations. And I think that actually does it for this week. Uh, We really appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, You can get updates about what's coming up next or just about the podcast we recently did (laughs) by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. Yeah, I'm trying to get better at actually sending out updates about what's coming up oh, next. Yeah. I realize we say that every show, and then we don't just, always do it. But Just follow Will and I um, on Twitter, which we'll give you our handles in a second. <laughs> All right. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter. You can follow me if you want, but I'm kind of weird. Um, I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will or Remus. And thanks again to our guest, Natasha Tiku. You can follow her at Natasha Tiku. That's N-I-T-A-S-H-A-T-I-K-U. You should definitely follow Natasha. She's super She's smart. Great. Yeah. And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that. It's cool of you. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez for engineering here in lovely Berkeley, California. Thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. And thanks all also to Nick and Kyle for talking me through Jewel a little bit before the show. I was like picking their brains about like, you know, who who is Jeweling and, and what is it like and what do you think of somebody? So I appreciate their help with that. We will see you next week. Bye, guys.